From COP28 in Dubai, I'm Greg Dalton. From Tucson, Arizona, I'm Ariana Brocious. And this is Climate One. We're a week into the 28th Conference of Parties, the UN's annual climate summit, held this year in the city of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. This place on the Persian Gulf feels like a combination of Waikiki, Las Vegas, and Hong Kong. Soaring towers, flashy wealth, and waterfront resorts. And all built on fossil fuels. Right. It's the primary source of wealth here in this OPEC country. Last week, you described the conference as the Climate Super Bowl. This is where all the big players come to negotiate. However, this year, the leaders of the two biggest emitters, the U.S. and China, are notably absent. Uh, But it sounds like some progress is being made. And I know the final agreement doesn't come together until the very last days or, or even hours at these summits. But what's the news so far? There have been a few notable announcements. This is the year of the global stock take where countries are supposed to show how far they've come in meeting the carbon reduction targets they set in Paris seven years ago. It's kind of like midterm exams and pretty much everybody is failing. On the other hand, more than 110 countries have pledged to triple renewable energy capacity and double energy efficiency by 2030. They don't quite know how they're going to do that, but they're putting that out there. And climate wonk speak, that's called increased ambition. And that's a good thing. Yeah, that is a good thing. I also read that more than 100 countries have called for an immediate end to all new oil and gas production, and they want to set clear end dates for phasing out fossil fuels. And that honestly seems like pretty big news also. That's what the science says is necessary. That's what energy experts say is necessary. And that's significant that about half of the countries in the world are signing up for that. So last year, one of the biggest outcomes of the conference was the creation of this loss and damage fund. What have you heard so far about funding that, actually putting money into it? That was one of the early bright spots here. As we record this, country pledges are over $700 million. Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley, a climate champion, expressed some optimism about rich nations finally providing funding to countries like hers to adapt and respond to climate impacts. This has probably been the most progress we've seen in the last 12 months on finance, Um, but we're not where we need to be yet. We're hearing that a lot this week. There's a long way to go. Well, some of the news on this side of the ocean has focused on comments made by the COP president, a man named Sultan Al-Jaber. He also heads the UAE's national oil company. And this week, a video circulated in which he said there is, quote, no science behind the idea that fossil fuels have to be phased out in order to keep average global temperatures from rising. That's pretty shocking coming from the person who's leading the International Climate Summit. So what's been the reaction there? A lot of outrage. He's tried to walk it back a little bit. We spent a good portion of our show last week on the controversy around Al-Jaber as COP president. He's brought a lot of his fossil fuel friends here to this conference, and it does seem like the fossil fuel industry has a larger presence here than ever before. The CEO of Exxon came to one of these conferences for the first time. Hmm. Well, we know fossil fuel companies have a long history of squashing science and misdirecting the proven impact of their products on the global climate. And they've also made record profits over the last century by selling all of us oil and gas products. And you can see why such insanely profitable companies would balk at voluntarily giving up those profits and shutting down their industry. You could argue that oil companies should use some of that wealth to invest more in renewables. But those are less profitable because right now we don't pay for the pollution caused by dirty energy. None of us pay the true cost at the pump or at the meter. 
Right, our markets are not working. But there is a bit of progress from this sector. ExxonMobil and Saudi Aramco, two of the world's biggest oil companies, are leading a pledge to reach near-zero methane emissions by 2030. They've gotten dozens of other companies to sign on to it, and there's a satellite that will actually measure the leaking to keep them honest. This is good news because methane is a major contributor to global warming. It has way more warming impact than carbon dioxide in the short term. But these companies are not agreeing to cut emissions from burning their actual oil and gas, but rather capturing some of the wasted methane that escapes when drilling or refining. So, again, progress, but not nearly enough. Here's what U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres had to say at the opening of the conference. We cannot save a burning planet via fireholes of fossil fuels. We must accelerate a just, equitable transition to renewables. The science is clear. The 1.5 degree limit is only possible if we ultimately stop burning all fossil fuels. Not reduce, not abate, phase out with a clear time frame aligned with 1.5 degrees. There's a lot of talk here about numbers and pledges. Those are important, and we can't forget the people at the heart of it all. In this episode, we'll hear from people all over the world. A woman from Sudan who fled armed conflict with her baby. A Kenyan woman who's haunted by seeing animal carcasses by the side of the road in her country. And an indigenous woman who did a crowdfunding campaign to get here. These women have traveled thousands of miles to this UN climate summit in Dubai to share their experiences and have their voices heard. We'll get to their stories a little later on in the show. But first, we're going to check in on how well countries are doing meeting the goals they set for themselves at the Paris Accords. You spoke with Claire Stockwell, Senior Climate Policy Analyst with Climate Analytics. She's also the lead author on the latest report from Climate Action Tracker. This is the premier independent body for comparing how countries' promises stack up against reality. So welcome. Good to see you again. Nice seeing you. So you're kind of the, the teacher that's grading everybody on their progress. What are the takeaways? Countries are still failing. I mean, what the, the update that we put out today is showing that the targets and actions that governments put on the table have stalled. It's essentially the same report we put out three years ago in Glasgow. Mm. Uh, and so we need at this meeting governments to commit to a lot uh, more ambitious uh, action and targets, and that's going to start with making sure that in the final decision uh, they agree to phasing out fossil fuels. And the phasing out fossil fuels, so emissions need to go down, and this world's curves that go down are good. Yep. And, I, and I have my mind, some are going down, some are going up. Paint a picture for me of different countries and how their curves are going <laughs> in the way we want them to, and some are going the wrong way. Okay, I will maybe start with the good news, and that would be in this uh, update, we looked, uh, we extended our window of analysis out to 2035, because that was going to give us a better sense of how emissions would evolve and how warming would evolve over the, uh, the rest of the century. For China's emissions, we're showing a peaking post-2030 where renewables could really take over and ensure that they are on a structural decline in terms of getting out of coal. But let me just jump in. And I yep. heard from one of your colleagues that China's peaking earlier than expected. That's pretty good news, right? That is pretty good news, but that trajectory needs to come down a lot faster than okay. it currently is. So that's good, but in our numbers, it's still higher than where we had China last year. Mm. 
Mm. Peaking is, is, is one thing, but then you need to start to decline. And okay. the problem is that they essentially stay flat, more or less, till 2030. And it's only post-2030 that you're starting to see that drop in emissions. And okay. so we need to see a much uh, faster action from them. India's emissions continue to rise till 2030, but there, uh, you have to also remember India is at a lower level of development. So from a fairness standpoint, we would hope that India or would expect that India would basically stabilize its emissions at today's level over the course of the decade and that it's going to really need the support of the international community to bring that down and accelerate its transition to a renewable, clean, renewable future. Yeah, when I saw that India curve going up, I was like, oh, that's not good. Totally fair that they are in a different place and they're modernizing, et cetera, doing that on fossil fuels. And how about the U.S.? The U.S., the emissions are, we are seeing the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act and bringing that emissions down, but it's just not. Already? That's pretty we're, uh, We had already started to see that last year in our numbers, and this year I think we're just still, we have greater confidence in the estimates that we're putting out. We can better estimate the impact of the act, but they're still far off meeting. Their, their target at that's you know at the end of the decade. So the Inflation Reduction Act was a good first step, but they've got a lot more to go in this decade and then to actually get to net zero. And then one of your colleagues said here at a press conference that the production plans for some of the oil exporting states are really going in the wrong direction, Saudi mm -hmm. Arabia, et cetera. Uh, that just seems non-compatible with what the world needs. Tell us about those. Well, and that's also true of the United States as well, uh, in terms of increased uh, production. I mean, the IEA has been telling us for years that if we want to keep to 1.5 degrees, we can have no new developments uh, in oil and gas. Wow. And so that remains the message. We, that's why we're calling here the number one thing that we need to see out of this meeting is an agreement to phase out fossil fuels and fossil fuel production because we will exceed the, the warming limits of the planet if we continue down this road. Wow. So everybody's, it seems like there's a financial incentive to like, oh, this stuff's going away. We better dig out as much of ours and turn it into cash as fast as we can. When you look at all of the costs associated with it, Renewables are cheaper to, uh, in most cases, to implement. It's better for the health of your population. You look at the air quality here in uh, Dubai, I heard yesterday, was at record high levels. They've got a gas plant right um, in town. It's massive. It's massive. We go by it every day. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it, it's cheaper. And, and obviously, when we think of this year, the amount of impacts that we saw globally. Uh, the D WTO put out the report a couple of days ago and said on every inhabited continent, you had record-breaking heat, uh, you had wildfires, uh, the wildfires in Canada, it was affecting the, the air quality in a lot of American uh, states and cities. Uh, you had record tropical cyclones. And so, uh, yeah, fossil fuels may benefit a very select few, but for the health of the planet and for people generally, uh, renewables is the, the way, the way we go. need to and go. Yet, a big part of contention here, the language of this conference and mm -hmm. pointing toward the ultimate declaration is whether to phase out, phase down, unabated, which basically means kind of capturing emissions, putting mm -hmm. it in the ground somewhere. How does that factor into your scenarios? Basically, if you want to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, you've got to phase them out. There can't be any footnotes, there can't be any fancy language, any twisting uh, of um, adding in backdoors, loopholes, anything like that. It's just a pure and simple phase out of fossil fuels. We know by 2030 you're going to need to cut production and use by about 40% to keep the window for 1.5 degree alive. So anything else besides a simple phase out 
is just a distraction and a false solution. We're here in uh, the UAE, a big uh, exporter of methane gas, liquefied natural gas. Uh, the wealth of this country was built on that. When we talked last year, you were concerned about the world overbuilding natural gas capacity because of the war in Ukraine. Europe suddenly gets shut off. A big rush to build export terminals, et cetera. How is that factoring in? Are you still concerned about that? We are still concerned. We haven't updated the analysis since last year, but at least the the Europe is con is continuing to to bring on LNG production, and the risk there is just that you build. It's, it's twofold. Either you build technology that you don't use and you have a stranded asset and waste of resources, or even worse, because you've got it, you continue to burn uh, and use fossil gas, and then that's delaying the uptake of renewables that we otherwise would have. So we're still very concerned about, um, yeah, fossil gas is not a, it's not a bridge fuel, it's not a solution, it needs to be phased out um, as fast as coal and, and oil and the rest of them. Right, and so we have to develop alternatives. What's happening on the on the replacement side in terms of wind and solar deployment? Because we've been talking more on the fossil dirty side. What's what's you know, attacking supply doesn't work if demand is still there and there's not an alternative. Mm -hmm. Well, we we are seeing some positive numbers. We do think the in our China analysis this time in our most ambitious. Um, uh, assessment, we could be seeing the beginnings of a structural decline in China. The acceleration of renewables is fast enough to both uh, meet the rising energy demand needs of China as well as to displace coal from its system. But that is, uh, that's our most ambitious assessment and it's also not fast enough. So we still need in, in all instances, in all countries, much faster uptake to renewables. And for developing countries, that's going to mean uh, getting the finance that they need to get there because they can't do it all on their own. And developed countries like the U.S. and Canada have been falling short on uh, delivering on the amount of climate finance to really enable uh, a just energy transition for everyone. Right. The sad reality is voters in democracies don't want to send money to people in, in countries they can't find on a map and don't know. And yeah, we haven't talked about Russia, which, you know, it, in your map, I see kind of the U.S. and Australia doing pretty good. China, India, Canada, you know, struggling more. And then, then there's Russia, which is a whole different other highly. And so I think it gets the worst color. Tell us about Russia. Critically insufficient. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Russia's emissions are down uh, compared to last year. But we think that is more the impact uh, on the economy mm -hmm. from the um, from their illegal invasion of Ukraine uh, than any climate policies. I mean, we haven't seen any evidence uh, within Russia. Of, They're not uh, trying to decarbonize. They are one. not trying to decarbonize. They are a significant uh, oil and gas producer. And like the rest of them, we would need to see them um, uh, phasing out um, production. Yeah, it's just it's hard to see any country voluntarily doing that, right? You know, I mean, it's... Every political leader is responsible to their people. And if you only care about the people that you work for, you extract the resource that... But it's all connected in that, you know, you can't, uh, which I think Americans uh, close to the Canadian border saw this summer, the devastating wildfires that Canada experienced. You felt the health impacts yeah. across the border of that. Yeah. Um, you also have devastating wildfires of your own this year that were um, massively destructive. And so what happens somewhere in another part of the world 
is going to affect Americans, is going to affect Canadians. So we do, it is really a collective effort that we need, and it is for the benefit of everyone. But that's also to the other part of your question, why, uh, you know, why would anyone do it on their own? That's why we need the agreement here. All the world's governments are here, and they need to collectively agree to phase out fossil fuels. And once you get that signal, that is going to reverberate into markets and investment decisions. Countries are going to have to start preparing targets for the 2035 period. I mean, we need action this decade, but those targets also need to be very definitively on a pathway to net zero. So we just came out from a press conference where this report was released here in uh, Dubai. And the final question was from a journalist who said, do you think that the president, conference president, is putting forward fake solutions? And everybody kind of smir smiled and smirked on the stage and looked at the one person like, how is he going to handle this? You didn't answer it. I want to put you on the spot and answer it now. What do you think about the proposals? Well, I think the COP president has the opportunity to prove everyone wrong. He is the head of the, the state-run oil company, so that would seem to be an apparent conflict of interest to be leading a climate conference. But we will see, the proof will be in the pudding of the COP decision that we have uh, at the end of this meeting that he is chairing, whether we get that phase out um, to fossil fuels. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. Claire Stockwell is Senior Climate Policy Analyst with Climate Analytics. Climate One is on the ground at COP28. Stay up to date by subscribing to our podcast wherever you listen. Coming up, thousands of young people attend the Climate Summit to pressure heads of state to take action now. The young generation is not the generation that caused climate change, but is the generation that will have to deal with the sequences. Yet we are not the one making the decisions, the decisions that will even impact more the future. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Ariana Brocious. And I'm Greg Dalton at COP28 in Dubai. This metropolis on the Persian Gulf is like Disneyland's small world in a desert. It's a fascinating mix of faces and cultures. This city is fast-paced, oozing with luxury resorts and Ferraris. Most people don't seem to know there's a conference here discussing pollution trends that could make this place unlivable in their lifetimes. Right. We're in serious trouble. The numbers Claire Stockwell shared are pretty sobering. Despite all the promises made since the Paris Agreement, global greenhouse gas emissions are still going up. But not everything is lost. Al Gore spoke at the conference earlier this week, and he described just how big a change we could see if we can truly zero out fossil fuel pollution. If we get to true net zero, temperatures will stop going up in the world with a lag time of as little as three to five years. It's, it's like flipping a switch. Hard switch to flip because we've got to stop adding to the amount of greenhouse gas pollution in the sky. But once we do that, the temperatures will stop going up. So we can choose a bright future. We can choose to give young people hope about the future again. We can start the long, slow healing process if we phase out fossil fuels. That's the answer to it. Al Gore has been on a tear recently, and it's good to hear him expressing such optimism. Yeah, it is. And also, you can hear the urgency in his voice. He's really asking us to act. And he's getting his information from a consensus of international scientists. This was a huge new finding in the last couple of years that, quite frankly, gives me a lot of hope. 
They generally now agree that if we can stop burning fossil fuels, things will get better quickly. Yeah, that's a big if. In all of these international negotiations, full of jargon and numbers, it's easy to lose sight of what's really at stake. Earlier this week, John Kerry said, quote, We should not measure progress on the climate crisis just by degrees averted, but by the lives saved. By some estimates, 70% of the countries most at risk of climate impacts are also at risk of armed conflict or are already at war. One example is Sudan, where a war between two rival armies has been going on since April. Nisreen El Saem is a Sudanese climate activist and former chair of the UN Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group. She's experienced the war firsthand. Nisreen told me the harrowing story of fleeing the conflict with her nine-month-old baby. Our house is a walking distance from the airport, also a walking distance from the military base, where the, it was the, the first targets. Um, so I woke up 9 a.m. scared because my baby's crib, like, smashed into our bed. The, the bomb was so strong to the moment that the furniture moved. And uh, I woke up and asked my husband what's happening. He said he's been hearing bullets and firing for like half an hour. Wow. And now this big bump. And he said, it's definitely war. And, and the first thing that came to us is our baby. Mm. Uh, so I took him and run the stairs down because we were in the upper floor. I didn't even take my slippers. So mm. barefoot. I run downstairs. We were in a war zone. So I had to cover the, 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 the windows, the doors, so we don't get any bullets coming in. Mm. We stayed at the floor. For three weeks, we stayed in the floor. We ate in the floor, we slept in the floor, everything we did in the floor, wow. uh, under the beds. Um, and three weeks we spent inside of the firing area because we couldn't get out. Mm -hmm. I, I put my head out of the of the yard and I was like heavily shot at. So we we just stayed inside. Mm. The the first week was okay because we had electricity, water and food supplies. The second week we lost electricity. But it was still fine. We were suffering of course with mosquitoes and the weather because in Sudan it was forty nine at that time. Whoa. I know. Whoa. Um and my baby got heat rash, but it, we couldn't get out. It was the only way to stay in. But the third week was the hardest because the third week we lost electricity, water, and food. We ran out of supplies because we, we don't have farm inside of the house. And you say 49. I mean, I was in Asia recently. I got close to 40, and it was unbearably. This is Celsius, of course. Yes, yeah, Celsius. Uh, is there a climate connection to the heat? Definitely. I'm coming to that. Yeah. I'm a fighter. So I told my husband I will not wait and die. We are dead anyway. I prefer to die trying than waiting. He said I cannot make the decision. I said I made the decision already for you, dear. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just the daily life of our life. It's not something new. <laughs> We're moving. Get on board, honey. <laughs> and um, I managed to only get a backpack and it was full of diapers because I can take bullets but not poop <laughs> to be honest to be it and with the baby I mean that was seven months ago so he was not even one year yet 
not even one year yet, yes. We moved to his brother's house, which is a bit far from the clashing area. Unfortunately, in two weeks, the clashing expanded and reached the brother's house too. And this is where I said to my husband, I don't think this is will end. Now it's five weeks. You know, and every, I dis, mm. this is something I discovered later. Every war or conflict, people think it's two days or a week and it will finish. Mm. And I've been speaking to a couple of my Syrian friends and they told me it's almost 12 years now. We thought it's two weeks. <laughs> wow. So it is the, the hope of the people that this will end soon and we will be back home soon. So I only took diapers with me. Nothing else. And, 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 and then I decided to just leave the country. And this is where it happened. So you were able to leave, leave so you're now... Everywhere. I'm a nomad. Okay. Sudan is 18 states. Six of them are experiencing direct clashes as we speak. So people flee to other states where there is no direct clashes. Soon enough, six other states were under the water because we have flood. So people cannot stay there. And throughout of the 18 states, only six are livable right now as we speak. So some are flooded, some have armed conflict, and people are all going into those area that doesn't have floods or armed conflict. Exactly. And guess what? Half of this area is desert. It's the northern states or the southern states, and the northern states is all desert. It's part of the Sahel region and the Sahara, the, mm -hmm, the big African mm -hmm. Sahara. It's part of it. Where there's no agriculture, there is no food supplies. And everyone keeps saying... There is a, a food security problem. Yes, there is a food security problem, but not only because of the war. It's because of climate changes. It's making resources in beating. It's because the, the temperature is killing everyone. So you have written and spoken about climate justice and specifically intergenerational climate justice. What does that mean to you? Well, the young generation is not the generation that caused climate change. Totally true. My, but, gen my generation, boomers, yeah. But it's the generation that will have to deal with the sequences mm -hmm. of climate change. Yet we are not the one making the decisions. The decisions that will even impact more the future. We were so young. I wasn't there when the... Like, even, my, even you, you were not there when the Industrial Revolution happened. But the decisions that that generation made is impacting you and impacting me and it will impact our future. Mm -hmm. It's the same now. The mm -hmm. decisions that we are making now will impact the next generations. And we are not the ones who are taking the decisions. Mm -hmm. So i just give you a, a small example. In, in, um, in Glasgow, I met Prime Minister Moody. And the day before, he, he promised that India will go carbon neutral by 2070. And people were clapping. I don't understand why, but anyway. It's a long ways away. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to him and asked him, Hi, Prime Minister, how are you doing? Fine, everything's okay. Do you think you'll be here in 2070? He said, if they didn't discover something that make me live forever, I don't think so. <laughs> like, are you going to be here 2050? He said, that is also not likely. Will you be here 10 years from now? He said, possible but very limited possibility. It's like, then why do you make decisions 
that will not will not impact you with any means. Why do you make this, why do you make promises that you know you will not be there for? Mm-hmm. How would you know that people India will go? I mean, let's let's imagine that's a very right thing, and India is genuinely aiming to go carbon neutral by 2070. How would you know you would not be here? How you make sure? So why not committing things while you are the prime minister, where you have the power to actually change things, where you have the power to secure a better future for the next generation? Yeah. Well, in 2009, developed countries agreed to mobilize $100 billion a year to support developing countries in taking climate action. It took a long time to get that money. Finally, it looks like that's going to come together. What do you think about that? That money, wealthy countries taking so long to come up with that $100 billion a year. Okay. Fact-checking, the money is not there. Because people don't have a definition for what is climate finance. Italy, just an example, put um, establishing a, a chocolate factory as a, a climate finance. <laughs> I don't understand the relationship. Yeah, maybe chocolate factories provide jobs. That's true. Maybe it's green. But how can it be climate action? How mm. could it be climate finance? This is purely investment. <laughs> ah, so rich countries are playing with the numbers and slow to exactly. deliver the numbers. Japan. Japan pledged $6 billion in 2009 to 2009. And until now, we are in 2023. They only used $1.6 billion. And with this rate, it will take them two decades to actually <laughs> spend the six billion. So even the money that is being pledged it doesn't mean that it will be expanded. I tell you another very funny fact. Extremely fragile countries, like the one I'm coming from, only gets one dollar per capita climate finance. Non-fragile developing countries get one hundred and twenty dollars per person. So we all know that the most vulnerable are the most fragile, right? So how can we make that money reach to them? UN works only with the governments. So what if we don't have governments? Yeah, there's so much injustice in the way that capital flows to the global south and to Africa in particular. And there's concern about corruption, political risk, all sorts of things. The cost of capital is higher in Africa than it is in many other places. Also, a lot of people are looking at Africa now for um, resources and minerals to fuel electrification. Cobalt uh, already is coming out of the Congo, copper. Um, so how do you feel about people looking at Africa now with eyes to access minerals to power a transition, an energy transition, hopefully a just transition? Well, first of all, just transition doesn't represent Africa. Only 30% of Africans have access to electricity. So what are they transiting from? <laughs> I mean, if you ask me, I say, hell no, I'm not working for just transition. I'm working for just access. Because you need to have access to transit from somewhere. Before you, yeah, thank exactly. you. Exactly. Energy poverty is huge in, in Africa. But then yeah. we have the opportunity to make this just access sustainable. Yet, who's going to invest in a country or in a continent where there's no stability? Solar power, um, hydropower, wind power, 
all of these resources of renewable energy are extremely expensive to install at the beginning. Of course, they have long life, they have almost zero maintenance cost. On the long run, they are very great investment. But the capital that you need to put at the beginning is also massive. And no one would put their capital in a country where they can just wake up the next morning and find everything was bumped. Right, right. How do you describe yourself now? Are you stateless? Are you a refugee? I'm not a stateless because my passport is still valid until the end of ah. uh, until October 2024. Okay. But I don't know what will happen after that. I'm trying not to be to be a refugee because I know I can reach resources that refugees cannot. I I can work. Uh, it just it will take longer, harder ways and with no like safety net or community but for me it's doable not like people who really don't have any other option but being refugees how gracious of you Nishreen thank you so much for sharing your story with me and um, you seem to be doing very well considering what you've gone through yeah I'm trying to live I mean <laughs> I don't I'm not a big fan of Winston Churchill but he said if you're going through hell keep walking We often talk about how climate disruption is already hurting people around the world. The impacts can be so varied, even in a single place. Way too much rain this year, way too little the next. While those on the ground experience these changes intensely, they may not always know how their local, lived experience fits into the larger climate science and policy framework. And understanding those connections can help people advocate for changes. Greg talked with Abigail Kima, host and producer of the Hali Hewa podcast. Abigail works to educate and empower the most impacted communities across the African continent. So I come from a community that practices agriculture. All around me, there was plenty food supply. There was trees around us. There was a stream literally across our farm. So I grew up in a place where I knew I don't have to worry about food. I don't have to mm. worry about air that is not clean. But then over the years, I have seen just the impacts of climate change and, of course, degraded forests because it got to a point that farmers had to encroach the land in the forest to increase productivity of the food because of the constant losses from either too much rain or, or, or long periods of no rain. So they end up losing their crops to, to the extreme weather events. And so for me... Witnessing that and seeing how the impacts of the degraded forest directly are affecting us, especially with the water supply, because the stream is now almost dried up. And you, you're from near Nairobi, you said, or you're here. I am based in Nairobi based, now, but yeah. I come from the highland regions of Kenya, a place called Iten. It is famous for the runners. That's where all the athletes train, so that's where I come from. <laughs> And you went to northern Kenya and saw some very difficult things. Tell me what you saw there. Yeah, so um, northern Kenya over the last couple of years has been experiencing long periods of drought. And of course, as a direct impact to the climate crisis. So what happened was there was a news piece on the television and 
the community members had come together, including their leaders, to pray for the rains. Because it hadn't rained, I read, two, two years? Yeah, it had not wow. rained for two years at that point. But of course now it has rained and they're actually experiencing floods, which is yeah, crazy. Yeah, so yeah. when I saw the news piece on TV, a member of the community said they think it's a curse from God. And I just realized the information gap that exists with regards to the climate crisis. And so when we went there, um, imagine driving down a road that is littered with animal carcasses. And I must say that this community is majorly a pastoralist community. So them losing their livestock is quite devastating. In some families, they had to share the food that they eat with their animals because there's literally no vegetation. And another devastating um, experience was seeing families eating in shifts. So if you ate today, then you have to let someone else in the family eat. Wow. Because food is non-existent. And, and this is particularly impactful women and girls. Yes, yes. So... A lot of the men in the households have migrated to in search of pasture for their animals and to look for places to trade. So the women are left in the home. The fact that there's no water, they have to walk very long distances to get water. In the western region of Kenya, they have to wake up very early, about midnight, to go fetch water because that is when nobody would probably be outside trying to fetch water. And so in that particular area, those cases of you know, unsafety, uh, rape. It's literally unsafe for the women and their girls to go fetching water at midnight. And you have written that you've seen things with your eyes that you think most climate negotiators have not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when we come to these conferences like COP, understandably it's a very important platform Uh, that is necessary for this generation and our time when we are grappling with the climate emergency. But then it always feels as if we are only speaking based on statistics and numbers and, you know, arguing about commas and whether we should phrase a statement as a phase-out or a phase-down. But then you don't see you know, people who are at the forefront of the climate crisis sharing their experiences and then hoping that their experiences is what will actually shape the decision-making. So, yeah, it it feels as if the most important voices are not in the rooms that matter. Well, Abigail Kima, thank you so much for sharing your, your journey and your story. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Find a link to Abigail's climate podcast called Holly Hewa in the show notes on our website. You're listening to a special Climate One episode from the annual International Climate Summit. Coming up, Indigenous leaders are among the stakeholders asking for real commitments. Some say they're welcomed for the photo op, but struggle to be heard. Representation of Indigenous people is always a good thing, but it's not enough. I should be included to make sure that my demands are being heard and I should be included to make sure that the next generation are also at the tables. That's up next when Climate One continues.
Indigenous communities are often underrepresented in climate negotiations, even as they face growing climate impacts. Here at COP28, many representatives of Indigenous communities struggle to get their voices heard and their needs met. Dr. Myrna Cunningham is a Miskitu from Nicaragua. She heads the Indigenous-led Pawanka Fund. That's a foundation that mentors and grants funds to Indigenous people from around the world. Dr. Cunningham says people need to develop trust in Indigenous-led funds like hers. When I asked her to tell me a story of an individual who was helped by her fund, I admit I was a little chagrined when she corrected me, emphasizing that Indigenous people don't focus on individuals as much as community. I'll give you an example. Our communities were hit by a hurricane, two hurricanes, at the end of 2020. And we got resources and to support roofs for the community. And when we went, when we went into the community that was completely destroyed, they said, okay, if you have 30 pieces of tin to for the roof, we're going to give one to each family and two for the church. But <laughs> we are not going to, to support only one family. We have to support all of the members of the community. So that's the idea of collectivity in community. We all get and we all share or no one gets. So that concept of community is very important in the life of indigenous peoples. And would you say that that's a lesson for other cultures to learn that the way through the climate crisis is together? You cannot solve difficult problems by yourself. One person in a community cannot solve a problem that is shared by the rest of the members of the community. And I think that is something that indigenous peoples have tried to share with the rest of the world. We come, for example, to these meetings with the notion that climate change affects all nations, all people. And if we unite, we will be able to solve the problem. But if we expect only the head of states to decide and do things, nothing will happen because they will not be able to have good um, response from the community if the community do not feel that they are part of the solution. Everybody needs to feel that they are part of the solution. So the collectivity is not only to be benefited by a, a specific measure. Collectivity means we discuss together, we agree together, we implement together, we assess together, we all share the good and the bad things that can come out from any decision that we make. Chautaleo Tranamil has also worked on a global scale with indigenous peoples. She's the co-founder of Indigenous Liberation in Aurelez, a collective for decolonization. She's Mapuche Poenche, born in Chile and now based in Amsterdam. How she got there is quite a story we'll hear in a moment. And how she got to this climate conference in Dubai is also quite a tale. For me, it was always an impossible mission. The lack of money, the lack of resource. So for me, it was, oh yeah, that is happening, but it's not for me because I don't have the money. Two weeks ago, I had this two days of ceremony and I was really talking to ancestors and I was really thinking, 
you should help me. If I am able to protect Mother Earth in a better way, then you should help me because I can't do it myself. So I ask people, is there any badge for me left? Any, any. There was one left. I said, okay, hold on. I'm going to get my flight ticket. I'm going to get my accommodation. I have now been backed by my ancestors, so I will do it. And I started this crowdfund, and within one day, I had like at least enough money for the flight tickets. And I was thinking, well, indigenous are always like radical. Even I get maybe a tent, uh, even I need to sleep somewhere, I don't know where, that is for later. The ticket is now mine, and I will go. So you raised nearly 2,000 euro in a couple of weeks, very short time. You're here among all these people from all over the world working on climate as you do. What do you hope to accomplish here? First of all, I was hoping to be healed. Um, I think that for me, uh, my work sometimes, it's, it's very... Uh, stressful yeah. uh, in a way it's always about educating or correcting or making sure that people understand so it's, it's for me also I, I need to have a place where I can rest so and I know that there are many people here indigenous who have the same mission so let us rest for a while and make sure that once we are out of the cup we are empowered again we are healed again we make sure that we are uh, equipped with new knowledge indigenous like new insights and this was for me personally I, I really needed to have that medicine uh, the second uh, objective for me is representation of indigenous people is always a good thing but it's not enough it's not enough to see me walking uh, near the people uh, it's not enough to have me on the picture I should be included for participation I should be included for to make sure that my demands are being heard and I should be included to make sure that the next generation are also at the tables so for me it's like opening doors for the indigenous people who don't speak English like I do, uh, who might have uh, more obstacles to be here. And I am here to listen to them and make sure that their demands are being echoed here in the now, in this place. I've never, I've, this is my sixth conference of parties, climate conference, and for over 17 years, I've never heard anyone say before they come here to rest. Most people I talk to think these things are very stressful because they're 24-7, a lot is at stake. Um, <laughs> and so the idea that you're here to heal and regenerate is interesting. When did you first wake up to climate, your climate awakening? When did you become a climate activist? Oh, I think it was, I started before I was born, I, I think. I happen to have a personal story. And that means that the, the concept for me of climate justice is very much aligned with taking care of Mother Earth, uh, taking care of, uh, of a mother. And I uh, was stolen from my mother uh, by birth. I was born in Chile, and 10 minutes after I was born, I was taken, taken by nuns to be, I don't know what they wanted to do with me, but for sure it was like they wanted to sell me. Um, nuns, nuns stole you from a hospital in Chile yeah. where you were born and, and didn't send you to a residential school that we've been hearing about. They, 
Wow. Yeah, and of course, it, I, it's not the only story. There are so many stories, like, likewise stories like me. But what so, happened to you? Where did you go? Well, uh, that is the question. I don't know where uh, I was for uh, the first months of my life. I do know that there were Dutch people who wanted to adopt me. And then I became Dutch. So I do have a Chilean uh, nationality and I have the family name of my mother. So in this way, I could trace her down. When I was 14, I was able to trace her down. So that was for me the way back, the, the reclaim of who I am. And as we are indigenous, it's of course then you are a representation of what nature is. So becoming a climate justice activist is not enough for me. I am just here becoming me as the indigenous daughter who was taken and now reclaiming her identity. So how do you feel here? We're here among people from all over the world, many different cultures, languages. There are many indigenous people, and some have come up to me and asking, using Google Translate, where oh, the yeah. directions. Many can't speak English, no. and yet yeah. you have this privilege of yeah. this yeah. English education yeah. in this colonial yeah. country. Yeah. So how, does, how do you think about that You're in your presence here? Well, this morning, I saw a crowd... And I was thinking, what is happening? And I saw that President Macron from France was standing there. And I was thinking, well, at least I have read a book of Kuhn Bogart. And it was about uh, the slavery past of France in relation to Haiti. And I was thinking, well, at least I have a political scientist background. I know about decolonization. But I know also the notion about the reparations. So I see now the person responsible for potential reparations for the future. I'm going to approach him. I said, hi. And the president, Macron, mentioned, you look amazing. I said, please make sure that you do reparations for Haiti. How did he respond? He looked at me, like you're doing now. And I don't know, I can sometimes read people, but it was not a place for him to uh, comment on that, I know. But he looked at me. And for me, that is the best thing I can do to make him think. Let him think about it. And uh, I know that he understood it. Uh, because it was a moment. So this is just, I want to say, this is amazing. Two weeks ago, you didn't think you were going to be here. And you went up to the president of France and said, you should I, I, have reparations in Haiti. A kind of correcting the president of France. <laughs> <laughs> and he, it was so funny. I was really thinking, okay, this is now maybe uh, the place for me to do so. And if I can be an independent person, entity, call me a human, and uh, I can uh, do requests from communities to make sure that I understand the pain, I understand the suffering, I understand the needs, then maybe I can be here and make sure that I know where to go. A lot of indigenous people are feeling... Uh, climate impacts, everybody is. What climate impacts have you seen in your mm. original communities? And last year I was in Chile and uh, I was there in the summer. It means that it's winter in Chile. And I was in a snowstorm. The snow came uh, around my, my chin. And it was I was unable even to go to uh, the restroom because the restroom is outside. I need to dig 
uh, to make sure that the snow have been removed to make a path for the restroom. And for me, I asked, is this normal? And they said, no, but it's, it's now getting normal. And I need to... Uh, extreme snowstorms. Extreme snowstorms. Yeah. And my uncle was asking me, do you know any Inuits? Do you know people, indigenous, who have maybe traditional practices who can help us out? And I was thinking, well, I should find an Inuit then uh, to make sure that we are uh, sharing knowledges, like how to tackle uh, these kind of challenges. Yeah, right. They, they, they know how to handle <laughs> snow. Um, you know, indigenous people manage much of the forest land around the world. What do you see as the most effective ways to support indigenous people who are land stewards for centuries? Mm. If we really want to create like an impact, not only na uh, nature-based solutions, but also indigenous-led, I think we should really be led by indigenous peoples. There are so many insights. Uh, science have, has proven it. Indigenous uh, stewardship have an impact. It is really essential to not only echo it, but to also replicate it. 80% uh, of world's biodiversity is being protected by indigenous peoples. So all the traditional ancestral knowledge is so essential for us for the future. For example, the indigenous peoples from Australia, uh, we in Europe, we have in summers also like a lot of fires. We don't know how to defend ourselves, like in Italy, like in Spain. I can, Greece, yeah. Yeah, and I can imagine if you ask uh, the, uh, the indigenous peoples from Australia, the Aboriginals, the, the, the Yunga, for example, they have systems in fire management. Mm -hmm. They have mm -hmm. like ancestral knowledge and in their own language, their own land, it was forbidden to do so. So it was for many years forbidden to, uh, to practice this way of uh, living. And then in Australia, there was a lot of fires. Later on, they approved the indigenous to do so, and there were no fires anymore. So what I'm seeing now is that uh, in Australia, there have been a referendum about uh, the acknowledgement of indigenous peoples in their constitution. They all said no. Chile, where I am coming from, we are not in a constitution. So we can uh, talk about the climate solutions. We can uh, celebrate indigenous peoples. We can, uh, you know, put them on a stage. But there is still no legal constitution. The, the rights are still being breached. So I am here also to make sure that people understand that it's reciprocity. So at least acknowledge us in the Constitution. Don't make be just uh, window dressing exactly. or ornaments that we are sort of shown to make people feel okay about their white guilt or just, yeah, yeah some I mean, I can give you some uh, inspirational quotes, but at least know that I am not recognized as a citizen in my homeland. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. And as we as we wrap up, I'm sitting here speaking to you. Um, tell me what's on your on my face. On your face, it's red, and it looks like a, a human hand. Yeah. Covering your mouth. Yeah, it's we are silent. The impunity is intense. There is no investigation being done. There is like the lack of uh, political willingness, the lack of investigation by the police. It's up to us to make sure that in places like this, I should wear this with pride. Because not only as I am a survivor, but also there are so many women now missing. We should 
uh, talk about not only the eco side or the climate crisis, but also femicide. So you're wearing this symbol of a red hand over your mouth as a symbol to raise awareness of women who are stolen and repressed, etc. And and you say it's a symbol of pride and to make people think and yeah. visually portray what people like me don't see. Yeah, because if I am thinking about all those women and girls who could have been something, I'm thinking that uh, for me, they are in my heart. Maybe they are dead. We don't know. But their soul was amazing. They were amazing girls. So I wear them with pride. And women, we know, are often on the front lines of climate impacts, mm. uh, carrying water, caring for vulnerable children, etc. So as we wrap this up, the last question, what's at stake for indigenous women as we get more climate change? I would refer to the concept of rematriation, mm -hmm. and that is the return to motherhood. Uh, for me, it's, it's essential to view the world as a mother, and we are the babies. So we need to make sure that we, as babies, are being taken care of, for, for sure. But also, once we grow up, we need to take care of our mother. So the whole sense of caretaking or stewardship comes from the sense of motherhood. And mm -hmm. I see that also at uh, the uh, symposia uh, uh, between uh, turtles and indigenous women in, for example, the Amazon. The turtle is going to lay the eggs and go to the sea. The eggs are coming out and the little ones, they need to find a way back to the sea, to the oceans. And the indigenous women are guiding this process for many years, thousands of years. So there is no mother for the little turtle, but the mother is, for that moment, the indigenous woman. So in all that we can do, at least make sure that we are here and we are, of course, activists. We are maybe radical. We are resilient, but we are also caretakers. Chantaleo, thank you so much for sharing your story and your positive energy of resilience with me. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be difficult, and it's crucial to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now from your device. You can also send this episode to a friend, maybe somebody who wants to learn a bit more about this international climate conference. Greg Dalton is host and executive producer. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Austin Colon is producer and editor. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wensi Shada is our development manager, and Ben Testani is our communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy and Philip Yun are co-CEOs of the Commonwealth Club World Affairs, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Mariana Brocious. Thanks for listening. <laughs>